Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's the resident we head to, and it's the resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. Well, we would like to help everyone. It's expensive to do it. You can't always do everything at once. But what I would say is that we can make a, a big difference on childcare. It's also older people, wondering whether they should retire early or not. It's uh, people looking for work. And then it's also the long-term sick and disabled. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. Lovely to be with you today. Thanks for being with us. As a little behind-the-scenes hint, we're actually recording this a couple of days earlier than usual, but you're listening to it at the usual time. And today we are focusing on the budget, of course, a big week, big announcement, and it's always a big set piece in the calendar as well, the politics calendar. Today, though, we're taking you behind the scenes of Budget Day. The build-up to Budget Day, the day itself, and indeed the immediate aftermath as well. Kirsty Buchanan, former Special Advisor to Theresa May, is here as ever. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning. I'm all discombobulated by the change of day. <laughs> no, I'm easily discombobulated, Kim. <laughs> you and me both. It's because I'm going on holiday, which is really selfish, and I really apologise. You swine. <laughs> I know. But, you know, it's nice because we've managed to pull together some really great people to do this behind the scenes of Budget Day to help us understand not necessarily the policies that you'll already have heard announced this week by the Chancellor, but how on earth the process works, how the day works, where does everybody spend their time, what happens in the immediate aftermath, how frantic is it. Um, so throughout this episode you'll hear from Karim Pallant who worked with Ed Balls when he was Shadow Chancellor also from James Chapman who worked with George Osborne when he was Chancellor and of course Kirsty as well when I, when I say Budget Day does it send a shiver down your spine Kirsty? or there's a kind of feeling that Budget Day maybe at the time was chaos but in hindsight was quite fun Well it depends what side of the fence you're on when I was on the lobby side of the fence it was hard work but fun mm. When I was on the number 10 side of the fence, it was glorious. <laughs> it was one of the few times where no one cared what was going on at number 10 and we all put our feet up and let... Because basically a week before the budget, the Treasury, uh, SPADs and comms team take over the grid. Mm. And as I think we discussed before, the grid is where you sort of map out, you know, week by week the news announcements you're going to put into the day. 
and a week before they'd take over the grid. So, you know, and on the day, I mean, I could just as easily go on holiday and no one would notice. It's a real, you know, for number 10 team, it's one of those rare put your feet up and watch somebody else go through the horror kind of day and smile. Let me introduce you to our spagoos, which is a phrase I'm trying to get to catch on for special guests. Today, we have James Chapman, who, in his own words... I'm a co-founder of a PNR business called JNH Communications, and I was a former advisor to George Osborne. And you'll also be hearing throughout this episode from Karim Palant. And here's how he'd introduce himself. Karim Palant, former Shadow Treasury advisor, 2010 to 2015. First of all, let's get an understanding of the build-up to Budget Day. Here's James. So it's months before. There's a whole cycle at the Treasury, an annual cycle. And uh, particularly now there is the Independent Office of Budget Responsibility the Treasury's in contact constantly with the OBR, waiting for the latest figures on the public finances, and those feed into a discussion which would typically begin about two or three months before Budget Day. Uh, and right from day one, there's something called the scorecard, which is a big A3 double-sided piece of paper on which every single measure that the Chancellor might be contemplating as a budget measure is scored for its fiscal impact over the following five years. So it's a huge um, working document that's constantly changing as as new new policy ideas come in and out, and that will give you your bottom line. You're constantly working to look at and see what the overall impact of your budget statement will be. Will it be positive or negative in terms of the public finances? Is that kind of a a very cumbersome process? Does it feel like that? Because I can imagine so many people feeding into it, whether it's other secretaries of state or whatever wanting to pitch in and say look give me money for x y or z and you've kind of at what stage do you start managing that well the chief secretary of the treasury is responsible for managing those kind of bids chancellor will quite often try and avoid getting his hands too dirty in terms of direct (laughs) negotiations with with colleagues so that does happen sometimes i remember a few tense meetings between george osborne and theresa may over home office funding and police funding so it does happen sometimes but often the chancellor will try and delegate that to the chief secretary um, but it's not, I don't think it is a cumbersome process, actually. It sounds old-fashioned, this piece of paper, but actually the Treasury, I found the Treasury apparatus, uh, the very bright, quite young team of civil servants who are the best and brightest in Whitehall. It, it's known as the Rolls-Royce of Whitehall, and the quality of the advice I got, certainly as an advisor, trying to advise the Chancellor on what decisions were likely to have, what impact where in the media, which would go down well with the party, which would not which might have an impact on the polls, which would not. I found the advice we got to be first class. Mm, that's that's really interesting, actually. Did you find that you had relative independence at the Treasury? Was the Prime Minister quite involved? What's that relationship like in those months building up? I could only talk to the relationship that I saw, and I thought it was, I mean, you know, I, I, I may be biased, but I thought it was quite an efficient government, mm. both the coalition and the majority Tory government that George Osborne and David Cameron ran, and that's because they were joined at the hip and they were they were in, in lockstep on everything. There was uh, there was an ATM meeting which I attended every day, where the two of them would talk about the policy challenges of that day and the and the coming week. They would have regular bilaterals on budget measures. Ultimately, the Prime Minister can veto a measure that's in a budget. I remember he did that once to us when we were going to scrap one and two P pieces actually, on the basis that poppers now cost more to produce than they're worth and are fairly redundant in the economy. And that measure got a long way down the track. It was actually going to be one of our big budget headlines. And at the very last meeting between George Osborne and David Cameron, the Prime Minister said, 
hang on a minute, I think this is going to go down quite badly and we will be accused of not knowing the value of a penny piece. And he scrapped that measure and it had to come out very last minute. So yes, the prime minister does have the ultimate say, but the treasury is, you know, the treasury is the most powerful department in government. It can impose things on other departments. So I'm thinking of uh, areas where it would stray into domestic policy. I'm thinking of one of the announcements I worked on was the idea that every school would um, become ultimately become an academy school, and that was an education reform measure, but it formed part of the budget conversation. An interesting point that James mentioned there about that relationship with Number Ten, Kirsty, just in the in the sort of build up and into the day itself. Um, you mentioned before about taking over the grid. What is the input from Number Ten? James kind of highlights that probably depends on the Prime Minister Chancellor relationship how that is defined, but officially. How does that work and what are your memories of that kind of build-up to Budget Day? James is absolutely right. It entirely depends on the relationship between the Treasury and Number 10 and more specifically the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. So obviously uh, back in the sort of Osborne Cameron days, they worked in lockstep. They were they were a team. Uh, they were one of the few really successful teams at the top of British politics in, in you know, modern history. We had Philip Hammond and Theresa May, it's less of a team. Should we put it that right, way? Okay. There was less of a kind of collaborative <laughs> approach to the budget comms, let's mm. put it that way. Um, so, look, it entirely depends on how frosty or otherwise the relationship is. But nevertheless, you know, the Treasury will call the shots. The Treasury will call the shots on, obviously, what is in the bulk of the budget. There will obviously be some debate with Number 10 about that, but ultimately they call the shots on what is in the budget. They certainly call the shots on how they comes out the budget in the run-up to during the day and after. And if the relationship is good, Number 10 has quite a lot of foresight of that. They have an understanding of what's coming. And if it's quite bad, it's frankly quite... Some of it's quite as much for surprise to Number 10 as it is to the rest of the country. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, make of that what you will. Uh, well, let's go on and have a little listen to Karim Palant, who worked with Ed Balls when he was Shadow Chancellor for the Labour Party. Because from the opposition's point of view, I mean, they're the people who are most in the dark in the run-up to what uh, is going to be a dramatic budget day, perhaps. So here's Karim on how they predict what's on the way. Things have, have changed over the years. There's an awful lot more that's briefed out in advance so people know it's coming. Whether that's, you know, entirely healthy or not is a whole other question. You know, essentially, we're all full-time politics people. We're all watching the same broadcasts, reading the same newspapers, seeing the same economic data that everybody else is seeing. So there are relatively limited parameters to operate in for the government. And therefore, from opposition you are able to anticipate a fair chunk of what's going to happen. There's always speculation and coverage. There's always uh, political pressure that builds up on particular issues. So whilst you might not necessarily definitively know exactly where the Chancellor is going to land on a particular topic, you know probably what are going to be the hot-button issues on the day and what's going to end up being the, the, the issues that you debate on the day pretty much in advance. I would say there's a... A rumbling starts maybe two or three months out and clearly real world events can disrupt that or can threaten to disrupt it but then don't and they can distract both your preparation, the government's preparation and so on. But basically two or three months out you are looking at here's what we think the data is going to show versus last time. And it's all about the wiggle room that the government has versus last time. So last time they came to the House, they presented their numbers, they made a set of announcements. 
what has changed since then that's going to make news and is going to change their room for manoeuvre and therefore what can we expect them to be trying to do are they coming because they've got a big hole to fill mm. has some major crisis happened that means that they've got to and you know u-turn on something or make a big unpopular announcement to, to fill a hole in the in their numbers are things going to turn out relatively better than they expected um you know there were budgets sort of towards the end of the 2010 to 15 parliament where the numbers kind of came came out much better than you know people had forecast potentially and there was a sort of an attempt to to make it all that you know oh you'd been the doomsayers and you've been proved wrong and and so on and that was a, a challenging set of moments to do so you you kind of know all that two or three months out but there are always surprises and there are always what you would sort of say known unknowns so he's always like we don't know if he's going to do x or y we don't know if actually the OBR is going to forecast quite as optimistically as potentially it might or pessimistically as potentially it might. We don't know if, you know, they've managed to uh, get a costing agreed on this that's going to allow them to do blah. Um, so that's the, those are the big unknowns, um, but you know that they're unknowns. Mm. So you start to think about how you might prepare for those. And then the other thing you've got to do as an opposition is frame it. Yeah. Uh, you've got to set the tests for what the Chancellor is going to do and what success looks like for the Chancellor on the day. And there's an expectations management game, which again, you know, ideally starts two or three months out with potentially a speech or an article or a, you know, a series of interventions on, on stuff and culminates probably on the, the, the weekend before. You know, you saw Rachel Reeves out this weekend. That's the kind of thing you, you want to basically get to that point. Back to James. There's always a tension between you don't want to get in trouble with the speaker for leaking budget measures which is viewed very dimly mm. by the by the speaker and uh, and is controversial so um the chancellor will normally be out on the sunday uh morning television uh sofas um and he will talk about perhaps the themes of his budget maybe some broad areas where there might be an increase in spending i remember one budget we would a, a big increase in defense spending was part of what we were doing and we we signaled that without getting into any specifics to give to give the sunday morning tv appearance a theme and then in the actual run up to the day, you will you might give again some sort of themes to the budget, but maybe it's a budget for strivers, maybe it's you know it has a, diff, a particular political theme or political aim and a top line. You might brief some of that quietly to um, journalists and you try and be fair about it. I mean, I, I included everyone in that. I think you know I, I really disapprove of selective briefing to a friendly newspaper. So we would try and make sure that if we did brief any themes of the budget in advance, it would be to everybody mm. and it would avoid very specific measures. But you obviously are worried about leaks all the time. I mean, the coalition was difficult because you had two parties in government and each wanting the credit for particular measures. I remember when George Osborne cut the 50p top rate of tax that Labour had introduced to 45p, um, that that was leaked. And the suspicion was that had been leaked from the Liberal Democrat side of the coalition because it appeared in the guardian which was a newspaper that would not have been top of the list for leaking that particular measure <laughs> to. it went down very badly with them and obviously the lib dems leaked it in an attempt to create a political row about it because they didn't really approve of the they didn't really approve of the measure yeah. so coalition made it more complicated but there is always the potential for leaks again if, if there have been discussions with cabinet ministers and other departments have brought in then other special advisors may know about measures may want to curry favor with journalists in the run-up you're hoping that your you know the best cards in your suit don't leak anywhere and you can hold those back to budget day and you're looking right up until really midnight on the morning of the budget to see what the front pages of that morning are going to be 
As the build-up intensifies, there are surely then questions about controlling the message. And within that, there's a lot to consider as to who knows what the message is, who knows what the announcements are going to be. With that in mind, let's start by considering the role of the shadow cabinet. It's perhaps predictable that the government gets input from lots of people. How does it work in opposition? Here's Karim. When you're framing the budget in the two or three months in advance, right up to the, the three or four days before, is you need to have a very clear sense of what your priorities are as a leader of opposition, leader of the opposition or shadow chancellor, you know, collective with the wider shadow cabinet, so that you've got your three or four big demands that you are making to what success looks like in this budget. So, you know, in this budget, the Prime Minister or the Chancellor needs a very clear promise or delivery for sector X that's in trouble this this year, and they need to deliver for X and Y and Z. You need to have that close working relationship with the shadow teams. But it's easier than in government, bluntly, because the shadow team probably has one or two staff. The shadow treasury team probably has four or five. The leader's office has a few more. And basically, you're all in each other's pocket the whole time anyway. Mm. So you haven't got big institutional departments butting heads against each other going, well, our budget will get this or that or the other. It, it's, it should, in theory, be easier. Yeah. Uh, in <laughs> yeah, in theory. Back to James now to understand how closely held secret announcements can be. Have a listen to this. I wonder at what point in the build-up you you identify what your headline grabbers are. I was looking back at the 2016 budget, and I've taken this write-up from the, the mirror, so, you know, we can take the slant as it is. Uh, George Osborne yeah. has slashed £4.4 billion from disability benefit to fund a tax cut for the rich and launched a 24 pence a litre sugar tax in the 2016 budget. So, you know, that's... Clearly, that's how the mirror has written it up. I wonder at what point you start anticipating what the headlines are going to be. Yeah, I mean, I remember that budget. That was um, one that I worked on. And the, the main headline actually out of that budget, which the mirror would, wouldn't want to reflect, <laughs> given where it comes from, but actually um, was reflected everywhere else, was the national living wage, yeah. which was a 20% pay rise for 3 million people, 3 million, you know, worst off people in the economy. And uh, in the biggest overall of the minimum wage since it was introduced. Um, and that was something that was kept very secret. So I remember Ian Duncan Smith had been pushing for that very hard behind the scenes for a big increase in the in the in the minimum wage. Mm. Um, and that measure was kept incredibly secret because we wanted it to be a dramatic flourish in the chamber on the day. So on the morning of the budget, there's a briefing. Well, both the person in my position, which was the person in charge of media, briefs the cabinet ministers who are going to be out that day on media for you. Uh, and then the, the the chancellor will also then brief the, the the full cabinet, and we decided to keep that measure, the national living wage measure, back, and not even tell the cabinet, even the, those ministers who were going out immediately after the budget to talk about the budget. We decided to keep that back because we just didn't want any leaks. Um, you know, the the chancellor viewed it as a huge, um, a huge movement of Tory tanks onto Labour <laughs> traditional Labour territory, and he wanted that moment in the chamber that would pull the rug from the Labour Party. And it did do that very effectively. I remember the, I remember there was a famous picture of Ian Douglas Smith punching the air at the back of the chamber in delight, this measure that he had not been told about that morning at Cabinet as he might have expected to be told.
And so finally, after months of preparation and build-up and controlling the message and keeping secrets, we get to the day itself. Let's hear from both Kareem and James in this section, and in a few minutes as well, you'll hear more from Kirsty on how she used to spend budget day. Stand by for that. So I would be in the Treasury first thing early in the morning just to run through final things. I would have sort of rehearsal sessions with civil servants who would help me with that briefing. I had a huge lever arch file, you know, with every single measure. You'd try and make sure that you'd anticipated every single question. So on something like the national living wage, you try and anticipate you'd basically how many people will be affected. What's the assessment of the Treasury on the impact on jobs? And any question that you might get thrown in that post-budget briefing, you try to anticipate in rehearsal sessions. And you have an enormous lever arch file, which you should be able to flip through, tabbed up with each of the different budget measures that you can flip, flip to quickly under pressure. So I was really preparing for that, for that session. And then for the actual statement itself, I always chose to be in the press gallery. Some advisors like to be down on the floor of the chamber where there's another box for advisors but I always like to be in among the journalists because I felt that was where that was where my job was really and you could kind of I suppose soak up the reaction and what they were you know you when they immediately exactly, start writing exactly you can see their live reaction to to measures as well and which ones are capturing their imaginations which ones ne- aren't necessarily uh, landing as well as you might have hoped yeah and you can see uh, look above you, know, you get an impression of the whole chamber and you can see which measures the Labour party are exercised about and and which which get the Tory backbenches going and are clearly going to go down well on your own benches I mean fuel duty was the classic one we were on you know every single budget we were under pressure to freeze fuel duty uh, or even do more in that area and that always went down very well with the backbenches. This was something we we learned like in the run-up to the first budget we had to deal with essentially the the shadow cabinet room what's called the old shadow cabinet room i don't know if it's necessarily where the shadow cabinet meets although they did for some of the time we were there which is is what's called behind the speaker's chair and it's not literally behind the speaker's chair but there's a sort of there's a set of rooms and offices that are essentially as you look at parliament behind the speaker's chair Um, and it's an old wood paneled room that looks a bit like you'd imagine the cabinet room looks like but it's a bit sort of smaller and a bit less grand because it's the shadow cabinet room you can basically book that out and it's sort of assumed that the shadow treasury team books that out and it's got room for maybe 15 people in it and you have to rig up i mean it's probably easier easier these days there's there's probably better parliament wi-fi but back in the day we had to sort of rig rig up like ethernets and all this kind of stuff to try and get everything connected uh i can't imagine it's that much better to be honest but the <laughs> yeah, the the, the um and um you know you try and get five ten you borrow some laptops from various places because the, again the parliament computers were at the, at the time i don't know if this is still the case but they were like enormous and you the idea of moving to the shadow cabinet room was a nightmare so you had to borrow laptops and all log in via vpns and all this kind of stuff and so someone would have to basically be responsible for making sure that all happened somebody would and this was usually me would have to be responsible for making sure that the right people were in the room so that you had the right people to answer the key questions on the things that you needed questions on it quickly what do you mean by the right people how do you decide that how do you determine who they are well what you want is people who are expert i.e the people who are across whatever the things that you think are going to come up are you need people in the room who can like look at the fiscal numbers and take a view quite quickly you need someone who can look at like welfare policy in Mm. detail you don't need basically the wider shadow cabinet advisors because essentially 
Chancellor isn't going to announce in detail the details of how particular education policy is going to work. They're going to just announce the big number. Mm. You therefore don't need someone who can do that kind of deep, deeper level analysis and go, oh, well, you know, teaching union X will be upset by this or, you know, this might work in the following week. Because that's not, that's not the level of detail on which the budget gets covered anyway. That's for the few days or weeks afterwards that you would get into that. So you tend to find that you'll have people from shadow teams that think a big announcement's coming on their brief and really want to be in the room. And you're sort of like, well, actually, mm. we, we, we've got limited space, we've got limited brain space to deal with input from lots of people you can text us if there's something really burning we need to see you also need people who have political information you know there are people whose job it is to keep track of like what the government has said the quote catalogue what have they said in the past or like what have they promised what did they say they would achieve by this date what silly things have they said in the past about topic x or y or z who can be quickly there and then you need your comms people so you need you know people who can pick up the phone to key journalists who can take in requests for comments who can plan you need somebody whose job it is to, to rush somebody from the chamber straight to the broadcast studios usually you'd have one of your sort of not the shadow chancellor but somebody else would nip out as soon as the leader had finished but before the kind of response from the chancellor mm. would rush out and get to the broadcast studios so someone had to go and get them and i got had to basically tell them you know this is how it's gone down or give them a really quick heads up on that you need somebody who's happy to be the person that just takes the piece of paper and runs to the chamber because normally in the speech that you will have drafted in advance but it will be gaps so they'll be like if the chancellor says x say this or if the chancellor says y say that mm -hmm. or if if the number is above this we can say this or if the number is below that we can say this so you know we've got the fastest growing economy in the g7 or the slowest growing economy in the g7 someone needs to quickly crunch that number and take it into the chamber whoever sat in the chamber around the leader or the shadow hands that can't be sat there on their phone because mm. it looks ridiculous. So you end up having somebody passing them a note saying, say, you know, blah, blah, blah. And occasionally you'd have like the individual page, you know, we'd say to them, you've got page 17, but we'll send you a different page 17 of your speech if X or if Y. And someone would have to run to the back of the chamber and hand that piece piece in. Mm. So it's really astonishing. You, it's, it's, fr it's frantic by the sound of it. You know, people ready to scamper around with bits of paper. That's remarkable. Oh yeah, absolutely. And 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 but more to the point, like the documents officially go online. So like, you know, you've got like ten different documents. You've got the main red book, you've got the speech, the Chancellor's speech, which are the key things you want to look at. But then you've got like, say they've launched a new they've announced a new policy. I remember they said, Oh, we're gonna have all these pension freedoms and there'd be like a massive big consultation document. And that would all go online as soon as the Chancellor sits down, officially. But they would also start giving it out from various offices within parliamentary estate. So like you can go to like the stationary office and go, I want, can I have a copy of X? Mm -hmm. And basically we would have, we would stand somebody by the office and say, can we get document X in paper form? Can we get as many copies as you've got? And to give them all the copies and sprint up to the shadow cabinet room and just dump them all on the table and everyone would grab one and start leafing through because you don't get sight of any of that stuff before the chancellor stands up to speak or even sits down. Mm. You're, you're dealing with very rapidly trying to look at specific numbers. So you can't possibly analyze the whole budget yeah. in that time. You have to know in advance which numbers you're looking for. So like if you know the chancellor has said, I'm gonna get my budget deficit down by X date, 
and that's like the big iconic thing that they've got to do, then the first thing you do is you leave, you know, someone, someone's job it is to go and leave to that page and they've got a spreadsheet already all filled in with all the other years. They go, bing, done, mm. right, we can say X or we can't say Y. James Chapman, Budget Day itself, in theory, could be quite calm because you've got it. You've got it nailed, you've got it locked, you know what's going on. Perhaps to contrast it with the... Uh, opposition who are having to respond in real time to a lot of these things you've you've kind of got it you've got the messaging you've planned it is that the reality well i think social media has changed that a bit because there's always the potential for stuff to leak i remember one budget day when the before my time i'll quickly say yes. <laughs> when the evening standard political editor had been briefed on some of the contents of the budget in, on, on a strictly embargoed basis and somehow the button was pressed on that front page ahead of time mm. to the extent that Labour had it on the front bench as the Chancellor was speaking. And that went down very badly indeed with the, with the Commons authorities and the Speaker. So I wouldn't say you're completely relaxed. Also, the, I mean, the, the, the hardest part of my job as Head of Commons of the Treasury when I did it was the post-budget briefing. So I used to say to George Osborne, you've got it easy on budget day. We've got to that. He did all the hard work in the run-up, deciding what we actually were going to do and not do. But then on budget day, all he has to do is sit, stand up and read the speech out. Mm. I saw budgets as a journalist, because I was a political journalist for, before I became a government advisor. I saw budgets fall apart in that post-budget briefing. So the, the political journalists and some economic journalists will be in, in the chamber to watch the budget are like rats out of a trap running to grab their copies of the Red Book and the, which includes the final scorecard. And then they wait for a briefing conducted by the Chancellor's Head of Communications. And I saw budgets fall apart in that briefing. So I remember one, do you remember the pasty tax budget? I do, yes. That was, I was a journalist in that one. And, it, and it, somebody spotted it in the scorecard list of measures and it was a t it had barely been mentioned in the budget speech by the Chancellor. It was a tax, a VAT charge on hot takeaway food. And there was another measure in there, which is less is forgotten now, but there was a caravan tax that was also controversial. There was a granny tax, which was a change in age-related allowances for older people. And I remember John Craig, the legendary Sky political correspondent, spotting the granny tax and shouting in the middle of this briefing, There's a, what's this granny tax? And he christened it. And, the, and, the, and you could tell the budget was basically in serious trouble from that point on, mm. because the, 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 the pack of... Journalists were like, you know, it's like a feeding frenzy. And uh, they were straight onto this measure, demanding to know how many people were affected, had the impact been properly considered. And you knew the budget was kind of in serious trouble from that point. We would have like max two things that we were like, whatever happens, we're getting this into the chamber because we need it for the speech. So, and then you'd have people outside of the room, all of the shadow cabinet advisors, for example, for other briefs, or the junior sort of staff for the junior rest of the junior shadow treasury team. And we basically say to them, look, we want you scouring this for anything that you spot and let us know. And that's where things like, you know, pasty tax comes from, where someone goes, hold on a second, this rotisserie chicken thing is not about rotisserie chicken at all. It's about, you know, won't that affect blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then somebody has to bring up the House of Commons library and say, okay, what's covered by this? And they sort of everyone they're all scrabbling just as much as everybody else yeah. never trying to work out what's what that's about i've never known something like that unravel in the speech of that kind of granularity unraveled during the speeches they both independently mentioned the pasty tax kirsty fond oh, memories the gentle days when a bad budget was about a ill 
ill-thought-out piece of policy about <laughs> hot food taxation <laughs> and not the collapsing of the markets with £55 billion worth of unfunded taxes. Oh, we learned the gentle days. Yes, the, the sunny um, uplands that you often talk about. Yes, indeed. Um, actually, I was in the lobby for Passagate and I was in uh, what they call the huddle. So from a journalist's point of view... So, so two things have happened during my uh, working life as you all. One, the budget, from a comms point of view, used to be held really, really tightly in the run-up to, I don't know if you can remember, probably about 10 years ago now, it was a mm. terrible to-do when George Osborne was accused of giving a kind of half-hour heads-up, if you like, to the evening standard, yeah. and it was some sort of absolute outrage. Now you get these great big kind of, like I say, week-long run-ups to the budget, policy by policy briefed in. So by the time you get to the budget, unless there's one of those obligatory a rabbit in the hat, <laughs> you feel like you kind of heard all this before, as it were. Some of the reason for that, obviously, is to avoid what happens afterwards, which is the unravelling. So if you pre-brief and pre-brief policies, particularly ones that might be contentious, you up your chances of it landing well and and staying landed well, if you see what I mean. Mm. Otherwise, what happens in a budget is you, is, you, is you have the budget and then the Chancellor stands down, the Shadow Chancellor stands up to give their response, which, again, like I say, is probably easier these days because they know a lot of what's in the budget already. And half of the lobby gets up and leaves, uh, which is a bit tough on the old opposition if you're trying to make some kind of parliamentary impact and political impact. And the reason we leave is we go out of the back of the lobby and into this room where we have what we call the huddle. SPADs, special advisers and officials from the Treasury come to talk to us and we're given the red book, which is all the detailed numbers behind the budget. We all open up our packs of, you know, so you get a big brown envelope pack, one per per title, and it's got the entire speech in it, a load of really complicated stuff that I probably never cracked open, and, <laughs> and the red book. And the red book is all the all the mathematics of how it all works out, you know, if you've got tax measures, you know, whether they're an overall cost or an overall revenue raiser for the Treasury over a number of years, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're busily thumbing through it, and in my case, pretending that you know what you're looking at, <laughs> and in quite a lot of journalists' cases, actually knowing what they're looking at. Um, and then the uh, the SPADs and the Treasury officials will talk through what they perceive to be the key highlights, and then the Q&A will come. Sometimes in the Q&A, uh, you can start to see uh, the budget slightly chip away from the, from the, from the comms and the spin. Uh, and I was there for pasty tax, which I think was 2012. I think that's right. So we'd started to talk about what amounted to a, a, I mean, a really small fry taxation measure uh, on, on hot foods. And I think we were beginning to get into that fantastic in-the-weeds kind of lobby discussion about what constitutes hot foods. <laughs> I think it was the uh, fantastic Tim Shipman, oh, he political commentator extraordinaire of the Sunday Times, who tried his arm, first of all, with rotisserie tax, because somebody had mentioned rotisserie chicken. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Um, and this was all a bit upper middle class. And we all thought, mm, you know, and it, it, it sort of floated in the air and it kind of just like landed and died. You know? <laughs> and then somebody else, <laughs> you could see all the little cogs in journalist brains going over. And somebody else, I cannot, uh, if anybody knows, feel free to, to drop us a line and let us know who 
claims responsibility for it because my 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 brain won't throw up this memory. But whoever it was, then went pasty text. <laughs> And the minute they said it, it was just, there, no one actually said, ooh, yeah, but it was a kind of collective sort of, yeah, that's it, pasty tax, that's the one. It's quite a thing to be there when something is sort of unravelling before your eyes. And nobody, nobody on the Treasury team obviously panics about it, but they're sort of scrambling mentally to try and move people away. But the journalists are like, no, 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 we're good. We got past deck, we're fine, thanks. And it sort of unpicked from there. And that was, like I say, back in the days when, when you know, a small taxation on hot takeaway food was a big deal. But if you manage to get through the huddle mm. um, and despite our fantastic economic acumen, uh, we still haven't managed to unpick the thing. Back in the day, what then used to happen, a day afterwards, we would all traipse over to uh, a, a briefing by the... Institute for Fiscal Studies. Now, I think it was George Osborne that set up the Office for Budget Responsibility. I don't know why he bothered, because the OBR is as wrong as it is right, as far <laughs> as I can see. Whereas the only institution that journalists, lobby journalists, really pay attention to is the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And this was all born out of kind of the the, the flow of a Treasury week, if you like. So you'd have to run up to the budget, you'd have budget day, and the day after you'd go for your IFS briefing. And the IFS would have given themselves a good, chunky 24 hours to go through it. And then they would give their pronouncement on what they thought about the budget overall, what it meant for low-income families, who were the biggest beneficiaries, etc. We would all go to that. That would become the kind of received wisdom Bible of what the budget was really all about. Mm. Even if you'd sort of survived the day uh, as the Treasury team, it could then kind of slightly unpick the next day if the IFS went for it and really went for it. Still to come on Whitehall Sources, how do you win the day and what does the aftermath of the budget look like? How does that work from both sides, from the government side and from the opposition side? Lots more memories to come and the inside track on how it all goes. Make sure you follow and subscribe to our podcast. We'll be right back just after this. Now, far be it from us to advertise political party conferences, but one of the major political parties is heading to Liverpool in 2023 for theirs. Hang on a minute. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, excellent hotels in exceptional locations. Now, I've just been checking and I can actually confirm that The Resident has one of its excellent hotels in the exceptional location of Liverpool. Phil, who stayed there in February, says the location is perfect for shopping, restaurants, pubs and clubs, all within two minutes walking, and yet the hotel itself was very quiet. That sounds ideal for politicals for party conference, or if you're on a leisurely visit to Liverpool, for example, stay at The Resident. To book your stay, click residenthotels.com. So we've done the build-up and we're in the day itself. How do you win the day? What does that mean? Is it the government's to lose? We've hinted already at how budgets can unravel, but what counts as a win? Well, first of all, let's consider what makes for a good response from the opposition in the chamber. Here's Kareem. You get autumn statements and you get the, bu- the budget. So yep. the, often it's the leader does the, does the budget uh, and the shadow chancellor does like the, the, other, the other one, whatever it's called, it's changed its name over, over time. Basically, it's the same test, right? It's, do you look flustered? Yeah. Have you been caught on the hop? Yeah. 
Uh, does it look like you've been caught on the hop, even if you haven't been caught on the hop? Because the Chancellor has had a really good performance and made it look like they pulled some kind of crazy rabbit out of the hat, like, oh, well, actually, you said we'd be in recession, but we will never be in recession according to this data or whatever it is that... So, so first of all, like, there is a certain amount of stuff that's completely out of your control. Yeah. The Chancellor can have an app, play an absolute blind. Uh, the OBR can have like looked at data in a slightly different way than you thought they were going to look at and forecast something you just did not expect. Or they've spent some of the headroom that you thought they were saving for the election now to get themselves out of a hole and they've made a big announcement that's completely thrown everybody. You're either on the back foot and you've just got to plough on and, and deliver your messages and then it's all about tone and body language to show that you're not flustered. Or you've got to find the bit, the thing that allowed them to do whatever it was that surprised you. And just and if you can point it out and say, you've said that you've avoided this recession, or you said that you've done this, or you've said that you've done that, but the reality is X. Mm-hmm. And if someone in the room can get you that, or somebody, usually there's people, you know, you get copies into the chamber as quickly as possible, as well as into the shadow cabinet room. So there should be people who know their stuff. So, you know, Rachel used to do that for Ed, would would be, you know, or, or, or Ed M would do it for Ed B, or Ed B would do it for Ed M, or, you know, people who knew the stuff would be like, you know, Chris Leslie would be looking at it. You'd have people flicking through the documents to try and find the thing that basically you were able to go, aha, no, it isn't quite so simple. And if you can get that, just one, you do not need to be like dissecting the whole report. In fact, it would be impossible to do it. You need one thing that says, you said that X, then actually Y. And usually you can anticipate that. So usually you can say, well, he's going to say the budget deficits falling every year from now until eternity and it's all great and you know unemployment blah 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 but my job is to find the bit which says child poverty is going to be going up forever or there's going to be a doubling of child poverty this decade or my job is to find the bit which says business investment is flat or has been flat since blah or uh, and and to and if you can get up and say actually in this book it says this even just once and you've manage to nail your kind of core message, then the general sense in the chamber and from the lobby is this person is on top of it. Mm. And this person, A, knows what the weaknesses of the government argument is, has a decent enough operation to get to the nub of the matter quickly, whatever, and, and, and is able to, and is fast on their feet and confident enough in the chamber to get up and say, here you go. Now, the key thing of all of, all of that is a lot of the sort of unraveling that people expect to happen, that's not the moment at which it happens. Mm. It's usually over the course of that afternoon, and you've basically, as a chancellor, you've got until the Sunday before you can be completely confident that you haven't something hasn't completely fallen apart, and then you've got actual implementation, which you know, as we saw with, say, for example, Tempe tax on the Gordon, can be a year, eighteen months later, you, you still lose out, but but in a sense, by that point, the budget has been a success or it hasn't been a success. It's very hard for the opposition to make a real kind of impact on post-match analysis for the budget, as it were. But yes, it is their job. It is literally their job to yeah. oppose it. And and normally, um, I think if you've got a budget which has got a framing narrative, what they're looking for is to chip away at, at what it, what the government is claiming the budget does and saying, OK, this is your claim, but actually the reality is is X, Y, and Z. Mm. And normally, obviously, for Labour opposition, they're looking for 
you know, where it leaves, uh, you know, low-income families, where it leaves... Well, I don't like the phrase, but the working poor people, two-thirds of people on benefits are actually in work. Yeah. Where it leaves struggling families, I think, is where they, uh, they kind of most concentrate their firepower. There's something interesting as well, perhaps, in in where the budget comes in an electoral cycle. Do you think that changes priorities, both for the government and the opposition? That's something, you know, tax is probably one of the favourite examples of if you get closer to an election, you perhaps want to dangle a more favourable tax system in, in people's eyes to try and win votes. And I just wonder if that sort of changes the, the narrative of a budget somewhat. Uh, it completely changes the narrative of it. I mean, I can't think of a single other day where, you know, the interplay between policy and politics is so acute mm. as it is during the budget. So for argument's sake, a budget like this one is going to be conducted on a kind of first do no harm principle. This is largely a commit no news budget. <laughs> um and there is a, you know, and there is a, there is actually a valid reason for that. If we can uh, go back, well, it seems a lifetime ago now to the um, quasi Kwarteng Kamakwazi budget, mm-hmm. uh, which sent the markets tumbling. This budget has to do a number of things. It has to again reassure the markets that the grown-ups are in charge, and that once more you have competency, common sense, and stability at the top. So it has to do that. I think in background, not necessarily within the budget, but in the background run up to it, you know, the Chancellor has been doing a lot of relationship management with the backbenches to in, to in terms say, look, you know, don't expect a lot of tax cuts in this budget. We need to, you know, we need to drive down inflation for all the reasons we've discussed on this programme a million times. Uh, <laughs> driving down inflation is by far and away you know, the kindest, uh, most compassionate thing you can do right now for hardworking families. And so some of that is about squeezing down inflation and continuing on that march. But I suspect what they're saying to the backbenchers right now is, you know, and if we do that, and if, as promised in the People's Priorities, Rishi Sunak's five priorities, one of which is halving inflation, if we get down to a place uh, by the back end of this year, which is predicted and doesn't just come... Out of the ether, by the way. I've heard many people say, all the government needs to do is just nothing. Well, no. What the government needs to do is look like a competent government that knows how to manage the economy. That doesn't spook the bond markets. If the bond markets aren't spooked, that helps on terms of interest rates and driving down inflation. So so if that then happens, they are in a, that then creates more headroom for the Treasury and opens the door potentially to, not wholesale tax cuts, uh, in the run-up to an election next year, but but certainly targeted ones. And and look, you can say, oh, that's cynical, and you know, tax cuts before an election. Look, it works. That is some of the point of a conservative government, right? At the moment, we have tax personal taxation at a seventy-year high. So we have, you know, for us, proportionally very high taxes uh, and very poor public services. The balance we've always had is, you know. Do we want to be uh, like America, sort of low taxing, but very poor public services or mainland Europe, which has much higher quality public services, but very, very high taxes? We've always tried to walk somewhere in the middle. And at the moment, I think we're suffering from, you know, potentially being the worst of all worlds. But the ambition there is to drive down inflation by the government and then to move towards tax cuts. That is their stated strategy. So this budget is a kind of first do no harm budget. So all budgets sit in a political context and the political context by and large is driven by where you are in the electoral cycle. 
budgets can go down really badly or you know really well or or somewhere in between you never you never quite know i mean in terms of when do you know clearly the backbench reaction is good we knew as soon as that national living wage uh, announcement was made in 2016 that this was going to be a successful budget mm. because we had surprised everybody i remember the you i spoke about watching the journalists who could see that they were surprised and impressed with the scale of what was being done that you had the reaction of people like ian duncan smith in the chamber then there are after immediately after the budget there are the chancellor embarks on a load of um phone calls to editors of important publications and outlets so that's another sign you can get an immediate sense from those calls of you know whether people are impressed overall with the package or not you know the final judgment is the headlines that evening are incredibly important so you see how it lands on the bbc uh, 6 and 10 and the itv news and channel 4 news that that's clearly clearly indicative of how it's going and then the the the, the following morning's front front pages are important and then the chancellor will then also have another media round the following day when he's out and about and he'll tend to do uh, quite a grueling mm. you know quite a grueling schedule of interviews starting with everything from the today program on bbc to your your uh, channel to um a huge back-to-back list of regional radio stations which can be very tough yeah. Um, and again, from that, you'll get a sense of whether the thing's landing well or not. These days, I don't know if it's quite so cut and dried, but basically it's the 6 o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news. Yeah. You gather around and see what the clips look like. It's really hard for politicians not to get drawn into like Twitter or what the front of the various newspapers say or the kind of noise in the chamber and the tone in the chamber. Mm. Fundamentally, what matters is what's in those clips. Mm. Or certainly that was the case 2010, 2015. Like, you know, that is where the Chancellor always has an advantage mm-hmm. because the Chancellor can always lead the news with whatever they want, you know, major announcement. And the other thing you have to just accept is like budget day should be a win for the government. Yeah. You know, they have the whole you know, they have the whole power of the civil service. They have the the financial resources of the entire country at their disposal, and you have like fifteen people in a scrabbly room with a you know terrible tablecloth and a terrible internet connection you're not gonna like you're not gonna fight them to a draw as often as you're gonna lose never mind win the day on budget day itself your day probably is the following sunday Mm. when the sunday papers and the week's press and whatever have had their their say on it and everyone has to go out and do their interviews then uh, and can they defend it Whatever's you know whatever the, the small print was, uh, that's basically the opposition's day really. Budget day itself is, if you can get away with a draw, the government's probably got some bigger problems it's got to deal with. Gordon Brown used to have a tell. Mm. Um, he would speak very very slowly, and then if he was trying to hide something grimly in his budget, he would speed up. And that was the bit, it, you could just see loads of journalists marking that bit out, going, like, you know, at, at 4.15, he said, you know, blah, 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 because they knew, they couldn't necessarily understand exactly what it was, but they knew it was a tell, mm. um, and there was something grim to unpick in there. So it's worth listening to the speech, but these days, on top of that, whilst you're sat in the lobby, you can... Uh, you you can take your phones into the lobby as a journalist. You can't sit there and ring your mates uh, (laughs) while you're in there, but you can sit in there and and look at Twitter. And, of course, Twitter on a budget day is like a flaming waterfall of opinion, right? (laughs) Uh, So you're trying to listen to the speech, you're trying to look at the reaction of the opposition, you're trying to look at the reaction of the backbenchers, you're trying to 
work out if the Chancellor's trying to hide anything, you're listening out for the rabbit in the hat, and you're reading this constant stream of analysis, some of which is worth kind of paying attention to. As you say, Paul Johnson is always worth paying attention to. This man uh, has been doing this a very long time and really knows what he's talking about. So it's just a kind of constant stream of you know, information, inflow, input, from which you've got to pull out a kind of helicopter view of the budget. What are the main measures of it? What are the what were the things they're trying to hide? What are the good bits? What are the bad bits? And what does it say politically about where the party is and where the government is and what it's trying to signal to the nation? And is this a budget for the backbenchers? Is it a budget for the country? Does it claim to be a budget for low-income and middle-income earners, but actually, you know, the top 2%, you know, are actually the real beneficiaries because of sneaky hidden thing over here, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to try and there's a lot of incoming information uh, these days. uh, And to step back of that and within, you know, the space of a few hours, write, uh, you know, good, strong, meaningful analysis, it's a real challenge. That's the before, during and aftermath of Budget Day. One thing I'm always keen to understand from our Spagoos, our special guests, and from Kirsty as well, is whether days like these can ever be enjoyable. Let's start with James Chapman. I mean, it was a funny process because you're running on adrenaline for a lot of it. Everybody's quite tired by the time you get to Budget Day because, I mean, certainly George Osborne liked to work on speeches quite late into the night and the team would drop in and out and you'd order pizza and... You'd be there till potentially one or two o'clock in the morning um, in the run up. So by the time you get there, it's quite, um, you know, you're quite, quite tired and running on adrenaline, as I say. And that I did find that budget briefing. I mean, it was it was probably the most stressful thing I've had. to. I've done some stressful jobs in my time. (laughs) Being political editor of the Daily Mail is not the least stressful. (laughs) But um, I I found that was the most definitely the most stressful experience of my job it was you and you were up against a hundred very smart journalists trying to trip you up and find a hole in what you were saying and pull a thread and see the thing unravel as it as it as it did with the pasty tax and the the granny tax and those sorts of measures when they went wrong so i i loved my time at the treasury because you were working with a really excellent group of people and you know it really um, depresses me when i see tory politicians in particular denigrate the civil service as the blob and this kind of thing because the people I worked with were of an you know all of them could have been earning three times as much working in the private sector and instead they're choosing to actually do you know work work in work in, a, in public service and the quality of the advice I got was always second to none really I think it's probably a job you can do for a certain amount of time which I did, and and I think it's not not a job you can do for years and decades on end. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I reflect on it with enjoyment. I found it a great learning experience, and I have fond memories of it. But at the time, I found it usually pretty stressful. Uh, from opposition in particular, it's a very stressful experience because you are unsighted on most of the important things and your bosses and your particular boss are potentially very exposed in the chamber Mm. and that always makes advisors feel pretty exposed as well so at the time I found it difficult and stressful with hindsight I found it a huge learning experience and I I look back on it fondly but uh, I'm glad to some degree those days are, are in the past <laughs> yeah, that's quite a common theme i have to say for this podcast when we speak to <laughs> farmer advisors you have two hats to wear answering this question i think kirsty and you've got your journalist hat and your number 10 hat i think in which you can 
you can look back in hindsight. <laughs> okay, look, with my number 10 hat on, yes, it's utterly enjoyable. You get to sit back, see other special advisors run around like headless chickens and lose sleep and stress and... Uh, sorry, they didn't run around like headless chickens. It's a very, very smooth gum. They're like swans. Of course, so uh, Gliding on the surface and the hard-working underneath. Yeah, so you, you get to sit back, put your feet on the desk if you're an uncouth individual and uh, watch the budget and smile in the certain knowledge that this is one of the few days where you won't get bombarded by lobby journalists with... Uh, disobliging questions about your government's <laughs> performance. Uh, so it's a delight. It's mm. an absolute delight budget day for, for number 10 staff. I mean, look, you know, if it unravels, obviously that then does have a, a blowback effect on number 10. That's less that's less funny. Mm. But if it kind of broadly speaking is 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 smooth and plain sailing, then yes, it's uh, it's a highlight day for number 10 staff. For working in the lobby, um, Enjoyable is not the right word. It's satisfying. Mm. You know, you are busy. It is challenging. You know, there's lots of moving parts. And from that, as I've said, you've got to pull, you know, an overview of what it is saying about the economy, about the government, uh, about the state of the party, and present that analysis and turn that round. I mean, look, it was easy peasy for me in some ways because I was a Sunday journalist. But, you know, if you're a daily, you've got to turn that round, isn't it? Matter of hours. I mean, as a site uh, niche, the budget is a terrible thing for a Sunday journalist because Sunday journalists tend to, to work to the week ahead rather than mm. the week that's gone. Uh, so the week ahead, you're desperately trying to scramble for a good sense and take of what's in the budget, which is a bit like a reshuffle. You know, some of it will be chunky and right and some of it will be a bit off base. Yeah. And in, in the fallout from it, unless it's really unravelled and caused a big political problem or a big row, it's kind of yesterday's news by the time the next Sunday edition comes around. Mm. Uh, but for dailies, yeah, it's a real, it's a it's a satisfactory, challenging, hard-working day. The lobby strengths kind of come to play. You know, the, the, the strength of the lobby sometimes is that it hunts in a pack uh, and budget day is one of those days that, where they do. You know, you can see sometimes, as I said about, you know, uh, pasty text, you can see mm. a kind of view hardening like 10 minutes, half an hour after the budget in that lobby huddle. And it's it's quite a thing to see. So then, that is your behind-the-scenes look at Budget Day. So insightful, literally taking you inside the rooms on such an important day. My thanks, as always, to the brilliant Kirsty Buchanan, also to James Chapman, who worked with George Osborne, and Karen Pallant, who worked with Ed Balls when he was Shadow Chancellor as well. Your thoughts, very welcome, as always. Email us anytime. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Please make sure you follow and subscribe because this insider take from the people who have lived it, walked it, breathed it, lands in your feed every single week. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.